Good morning. It is good to be with you here at the Winchester Congregation. We have looked forward to this, and we look forward to the rest of the day with you. Be sure after lunch, around 1230, to come back in for uh, the next period of worship. And one of our students, Ben Coleman, will be presenting that lesson, and it will be a wonderful study from God's Word. We appreciate all of you that have made preparations for lunch. Uh, we appreciate your hospitality, and, and we're thankful for the many things that you have done uh, to make this day already so uh, warm and, and just such a wonderful part uh, experience to be a part of. If you're a guest here of the Winchester Congregation this morning, as already been said, again, we welcome you. Uh, it's always good to be together to study God's Word. If you uh, close your Bible back up after the reading, go ahead and open back up to 2 Timothy, the first chapter. 2 Timothy, the first chapter, and we'll be studying there in, in just a few moments. Uh, allow me to, to mention just a, a couple of things and I, I want you to hear what I'm about to say over the next few minutes, almost like bullet points. And uh, there's a chance that some of what's said, will, you'll kind of be thinking, hey, I'd like to know more about that. And so later on in, in lunch or before and afterwards, uh, be sure and come by and visit with any of us that are here for Fred Hardman. We'd love to tell you uh, much more about it. Uh, this year has been an amazing year at Fried Hardman, but even this past semester that just finished up, in January, out of 12,000 applicants across the country, four of our young people... Uh, were selected to sing in an honors crowd in Carnegie Hall, and we're thankful for the opportunity they had. Every first week in February, we have the largest Bible lectureship among the, the churches of Christ, higher institutions, uh, uh, higher learning institutions uh, across America. There's always about 2,500 guests that come in that week, and I'm saying that to you, so I'm, I'm encouraging you to mark a day or mark the week off on your calendar. Uh, it's no registration fee, free of charge, Come over and join us. You'll see so many people that you haven't seen in a while. It's like a big reunion, uh, but also you'll hear tremendous lessons. Almost uh, 100-plus lessons are presented that week. We'd love to have you. If you know much about the Preet Hardman family, you know that making music is a really big deal to us. We'd love for you to come back any first weekend in April. Also this year, we have a new uh, athletic logo, and along with that logo, we have a new legacy. Uh, we've had, for the first time ever, three of our teams this year to play for championship play. For the first time ever, four of our teams have been ranked nationally. Uh, here's our Lady Lions basketball team. They are the NAIA national champions of, <clears throat> of basketball, and uh, they beat out a team in, in California for the championship. Uh, we're thankful for our softball team. Uh, they also played in the first round of the World Series. Best in our program history, they closed out seventh in the nation. Uh, just this week, our baseball team uh, played in the World Series, and they played in the final game. And so uh, they, they were uh, runners-up in the nation. And uh, there, you know there's a lot of stories behind all this. It's just really tremendous. We're excited about a lot of engaged learning in initiatives, that is experiences that you gain outside the classroom. This is Jim Clayton. And he's always happy each year as he lends Fried Hardeman a million dollars. And we have 12 students selected every year to invest that million dollars. It's an amazing, unique opportunity for college students that are business majors. And then every year, he receives a check back of the proceeds from that million dollars. It's pretty exciting. Uh, we're excited about the many internships, whether it's at churches uh, in the summer or even those uh, students that are, have other majors in mind, they have other amazing opportunities. This is Hunter Heffington that last summer had an internship at Oak Ridge, and he was in the nuclear department where there were 43 internships allowed. And uh, they do real science all summer long, and at the end, you see his poster there, they have to present their findings at the end. Of the 43 interns, almost all of them were grad and doctoral level, level internships, 
but uh, they allowed Hunter to come in as a junior chemistry and pre-engineer major. At the end, he was awarded first place. Uh, it was really amazing considering uh, his competition were many doctoral students and he received a good cash uh, prize as a result uh, of that earnings also. And we have another young man that has just started this past week an internship in Oak Ridge. And so it's really amazing. You know, we used to have a slogan several years ago that we said a lot, you can go anywhere from here. And it's amazing how from Freed Hardeman it's still true, you can go anywhere from here. We're thankful that from fall to spring, first time freshman retention reached an all-time institutional high of 96%. 94% for all the other students. The reason that's so important, it tells the health of the entire organization. But the retention rate that we're really proud of, and it has a little bit to do even with what we're going to study about Paul and Timothy in just a few moments, is the retention rate of students that come to us, members of the Church of Christ. We have about 83% of our school population are members of the Church of Christ. We studied those this past year, the ones that graduated and they've been gone a year. And we asked them a year later, uh, several spiritual questions, but one was this simple. Uh, do you attend worship or not? And they had four things they could select there. And 98% of our students, a year after, most of them have been about 23 years old, 98% of them are still going to church most of the time. 90% said they're going every time the doors are open. That's pretty amazing at a time that during that age is usually when about 50% of our our youth that grow up in the churches of Christ are leaving the church. Uh, our goal is not for them to survive. Our goal is for those four years for them to thrive. We would count it a loss and a disappointment if an 18-year-old came in as, as a Christian and they left at 22 and all they did was survive. We expect them to be stronger in their faith. We expect them to have greater service toward God. We expect them to have greater knowledge of God's holy word. And so we're excited about that. Allow me to just quickly mention to you that we're glad to be here today on what we call a trek. You'll see the MIC, that's the Mobile Information Center, parked out back. I mentioned to you before, so I won't elaborate, but I'll just say this. There's uh, iced down Coca-Colas and glass bottles, a little mini moon pies, and even a photo booth set up. And it's for everybody, everybody. So come out and visit us before or after lunch. Spend some time with us. We'd love to get to know you. I'm thankful that my wife Tracy's here. Uh, what a blessing. I could go back to two big decisions I made in life that would be second to my decision to follow the Lord and surrender to Him. Uh, but that was making the decision to attend Freed Hardman University and there meeting my wife. Uh, that has been such a tremendous blessing in my life. And all of us with the Freed Hardman team are glad to be here today. Stop in and visit us at Dixon, Memphis, or if you're passing through Belgium, stop and see us at our campus there. Uh, but what we'd really love to do is especially give you an invitation to come see us at Freed Hardman. If you haven't been to Freed Hardman in a few years, you're looking at that saying, what is that? That big oval green space is what we call Bader Oval. Remember Bader Gym? That's in place of Bader Gym. And so campus looks a little bit different, but there are some really great improvements. And we really mean it when we say we'd love for you to come by and see us again. We love the opportunity to connect with uh, the Freed Hardeman family, with alumni, and etc. When I was at Freed Hardeman, I too believed in the power of internships. And so one particular internship, I was in um, another part of the country and, and I was living with uh, some Christians, very, very faithful Christians. And I was uh, in the breakfast, I was in the kitchen as breakfast being prepared, and this, this uh, lady, this mother of the house, she was preparing breakfast. She'd already uh, set breakfast on the table for her two teenage sons. She already had some older sons that had left home. And uh, the, the two teenage boys, even though they were only 13 and 17, they were already well over six feet tall, both of them. Uh, one, both of them played amazing college ball, and, and one went on to play NFL ball and so so here are these big two 
tall, strong, strapping young men. They're eating breakfast, and I'm still in the kitchen. Like if the way I remember is, I'm at the refrigerator getting something out of the refrigerator, and and the phone rings, and she answers it, and and the dialogue was was unusual. She said very few like complete sentences of any length. It was more like, "What? H- who? When? What? What happened?" She hung up the phone. And she looked in the direction of her sons, but it was almost as if she was staring past them. She said their older brother's name. She said, Dustin is dead. And one son literally dropped his utensil out of his mouth. And both of them just chimed in. What, Mom, what, what, what happened, Mom? Because you see, this family had already had one teenage son to die. They knew the experience and the pain of the death of a child and a sibling. And she said, he died spiritually. He's dead. And oh, they strongly, loud voices begin to rebuke their mother. Mom, you scared us. You, you shouldn't do that to us. We thought you meant he really died. And she looked at them and said, he did really die. Your brother is dead. I don't want you to think that she didn't understand the idea of God's amazing grace, that she didn't understand the mercy that God offers. She knew all of that, but what she was grieving at that very moment was what was true at that very moment. When we listen even to the Lord's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, you remember toward the end of the sermon, He just paints that very real picture that there's only two paths in life. And everybody here this morning, this is sobering, everybody here this morning We are on one or the other path. There's no gray area. There's no territory between the two paths. The Lord described a path that was very broad. He described a path that you don't even have to try to be on it. You can just go through life doing nothing and be on it. As a matter of fact, the end of that path has a destination. And the gate is so wide that no one will be turned back because they couldn't fit in. There's room. There's room for everybody on that sad path and that sad destination. But then the Lord also described another path. And He described it as narrow. And this always stands out. It's sobering to me. Out of all the ways Jesus could describe that path, Jesus called that path difficult. He said difficult is the path. And then He described the gate that is at the end of the destination of that path. And He says it's narrow. And then He said few there be that go therein. And so it's sobering to think that out of a crowd this size, there's, there's probably some here today that are spiritually dead. It's wonderful to think that there are so many here that are spiritually alive. It's wonderful to think that you have breath in your body and because of God's grace, you have opportunity, no matter where you are right now, you have opportunity right now to, to switch paths if you need to. And it's not because of how good you and I are, because of how awesome God, His grace and His mercy is. But still, that brings us to this sobering reality. If we look at the churches of Christ in America, we say, what is the hardest time period for us? What's one of probably the greatest challenge that we face in the Lord's church today? And it literally can be brought down to one year. There's one period of 12 months that is the hardest experience for us within the churches of Christ. 
And that 12 months begins graduation night from high school. And over the next 12 months, it's estimated that we lose around 60 to 65% of our young people over the next 12 months. Sometime in their 20s, 10 to 15% will come back to the Lord, but most of the ones that leave, the other 80, 85% that leave, they never come back to the Lord. It's a startling fact to think that, that when we look at our young people and say, which 50% are we fine for them to switch over to a point of spiritual death? And we all know that all of us just say, we're not comfortable with any of them doing that. So how can we address the problem? In other words, it could be said this simply. What can we do as a church family to provoke and to nurture faith after high school? That's our great challenge. Faith after high school. And you know, I've seen churches respond to this in, in two ways. Uh, you know, our human nature is we usually go to extremes. And I, I've seen churches go to the extreme where they, they say, okay, now this generation is the Z generation. You know, I, I constantly hear people refer to this generation as millennials, but they've aged out. They're not millennials. And we never know exactly what term is going to stick. But it, they're probably going to be called the Z generation. And so, so what some churches have the mindset says, let's study the Z generation. Let's see how they think. Let's see what provokes their thoughts. Let's see how they communicate. Let's see what touches their heart. And let's take everything we do as a church family and let's focus it on the Z generation. There's a danger with that. Because any time a church marries one generation, they'll become a widow to all the other generations. No one ever fulfills God's will saying all we care about is one generation of people. So then, other churches go to another extreme. The other extreme is, let's put our head in the sand and let's pretend this isn't happening and let's not admit it. Let's not talk about it. And if you think whether or not that does or doesn't happen, let me give you a little litmus test that you can take for yourself. When's the last time you've run into a 19, 20, 21-year-old that you knew them well when they were in high school and you knew that they were faithful members of the Lord's church, but you've not seen them in a year? Or maybe you've not seen them in two years. And so you, you ran into them and you smile, you strike up a conversation, and you talk with them about what? Oh, you talk to them about maybe where they're in college now, or where they're working, they're in the military now. You, you talk with them about family maybe. But how many times do you purposefully not bring up anything about church, about the Lord, because you're concerned with the fact that maybe they're not going anywhere because probability is they're not. And so it seems tempting to put our head in the sand and say, Let's pretend this doesn't happen because I don't want to address it. Because I simply don't know what to do. So having a whole church family that says, we don't know what to do, so let's not address it. Obviously, when we say it that way, that doesn't seem like the right answer either. So, where's the wisdom? Where's the better approach? Where's approach that when we go into God's holy word, we would see what He would offer us? 
What I think that we'll see in God's holy word is that we'll see this idea that God has designed from the very beginning us to exist within family. We go back to the book of Genesis and the whole idea of creating mankind was to create them first as what? Husband and wife. God's plan was for everybody that lives on this earth to live within a family. And then, years, thousands of years later, when the church was established, how did the Lord describe the church? We know there's many, many descriptions of the church, but one of the powerful descriptions of the church is where we are the family of God. Think about when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray. What did He say? Our Father who art in heaven. Think about the many times that He looked to, to each other throughout Scriptures and, and were called brethren. You, you see, all of this language is pointing to the fact that the way God expects us to see and to experience our relationship with Him collectively is that we're to be family. And what are some of the simple characteristics of family? Families, we're talking healthy, good, strong families. And, and I get it that none of us has a perfect family. And really no congregation is a perfect family because we're all flawed, we're imperfect. But that shouldn't stop us from following the model and pursuing God's wisdom the best that we can. And so we say, well, what's God's design of family? Family will always have multiple generations in it. Think about it. A good, healthy family will have people that are kind of like grandparent age. That they're respected. They're honored. But they also love and honor and respect the other generations in the family. Good, strong families will always have kind of the middle age, like parent age within them. And they too honor and love and respect the other generations. They'll also have young adults in them. They'll also have teenagers. They'll have toddlers and babies. Healthy families have every generation. And every generation knows each other and loves each other. And their lives are fully meshed together. Listen, I believe that the greatest success that we would have in approaching so many of our young people falling away is found in the simple fact of what if we the older ones in the church were very focused on the younger ones to form genuine relationships. Because we want to nurture their genuine faith and stir their genuine service so that they will have the genuine courage to stand when they go through that transition of life to allow their faith to fully develop its own wings as they go out on their own. How does that happen? I believe one of the great examples that we see in Scripture of how a church family can do that is with the example of Paul and Timothy. Because you know that we know of no physical relationship with Paul and Timothy. The way he brought Timothy under his wings, the way that he nurtured Timothy wasn't because, oh, this is, this is my brother's son. Oh, this is my grandson. No, it, it was a man who loved this young man dearly and met him when he was on a mission trip. Uh, I know it's been capably read already, but if you will, will you join me in 2 Timothy, the first chapter? You see, as we scan in verse 1, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's writing in verse 2 to Timothy, but notice how he refers to Timothy. A beloved 
Son. Now, I know this is very simple, and I don't mean to insult you with the simplicity of it, but think about what he's saying. He's not related to him, so why is he calling him a son? Their relationship has grown so close that he no longer sees him as, this is a young man that I know. This is a young man I know well. Their relationship has grown so closely that he says, this is a young man that I see him as my son. And then notice, he doesn't only say my son, but notice he said, beloved son, and beloved means to love well. So he's saying, our relationship has gotten so close, and I love him dearly. I love him deeply. Now, when we think about that relationship that they enjoyed, and we think about the genuineness of it, and, and let me just kind of come at this from a different angle just for a moment so that maybe we'll all be on the same page of this. This has been a great concern of mine for a lot of years, this topic has. And, and I've done a lot of study on it. And, and I've tried to figure out things for no other reason than just to help our young people. And, and so, I have even been a part of starting some programs to say, hey, how, how can we encourage some olders, older ones in the congregation to be mentors of younger? And, and how can we do a better job of, of encouraging them over the four years that they leave high school, no matter where they go in life? And, and I want you to know that I am not um, underestimating those efforts and the importance of it. I think to seek to do things like that is very good. But I just want you to understand, for our study this morning, <clears throat> I'm not talking about a program. You know, programs are just tools to help us carry out God's Word. But I'm not talking about a program this morning. This morning, what I want us to see is I don't know of anything in Paul's mindset where he thought, well, you know, there's a program that we're working in the church in the first century, and I, and I want to work out this program. And I have been assigned to take care of Timothy. Again, nothing wrong with that effort. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here? Here is a genuine relationship. Here is a, here's a man who was on a mission trip, second missionary journey that we have recorded Paul in Acts, the 16th chapter. He goes into Lystra. And while he was there, remember, and, and I just picture this in my mind, I can't help but smile. There when you read the first three verses of Acts 16, it, it, it introduces in verse 1 who Timothy is. Remember, he had a mother who believed. And he had a father who was simply a Greek. And then it's almost as if the, the men of the church are standing over the side and they are complimenting Timothy. So here's a church family that knows this young man so well that they are complimenting him to Paul. Paul's on a missionary journey. Now you may remember the first missionary journey, he had a young man to turn back. It'd be really easy at that point to say, yeah, I've tried to reach out to those young people, but you know you, they're just not reliable. They went half of the journey and turned back and left us high and dry, and we just don't have time for ones like that. Instead, you have to love verse 3. In verse 3 in Acts 16, chapter, Paul says, it is recorded of Paul, he wanted him to go with them. Let that sink in. Here's an older man looking at a young man at this time, would have been around a teenage age. He's looking at him and he's saying, I want him to go with me. Oh, why are you doing that? Well, I see the potential in that young man. And I realize that the potential for the church in the future, like if I were to ask you this morning, do you care about the future of the church? And surely all of us would say yes. 
But think about putting our money where our mouth is. If we care about the future of the church, it's up to every one of us that's older to look back and invest in someone who's younger. So what can we do? We're not all going to do the same things because we're not all the same people. We don't have the same skills. We don't have the same opportunities. But what if every one of us, from whatever God has given us, could look over, and by the way, you and I can't invest in every young person. There's not enough of you to go around. But what if everybody invested in just one or two young people? What about if you picked one or two, and then they were 8th grade, ninth grade, 6th grade, 10th grade? They're not related to you, except through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you love them, and you get involved in their life. So much so that several years would pass, and you would be able to say, I love them well just like they were a son or a daughter of mine. What does that kind of genuine relationship look like for Paul? Did you notice in verse 3, where talking about this relationship, he said, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing. So notice, he's thanking God without ceasing. I remember you in my prayers night and day. Notice verse 4 greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. So here's Paul describing this relationship that he has with Timothy. And he describes him as a beloved son. And you say, well, what does that look like translated out in day-to-day living? And he says, Timothy, now I want you to think. Again, I'm not saying things like this to throw you and I under the bus and discourage us. I'm saying things like this to challenge us and say for, for us to leave here today and say, I want to do that. When's the last time you and I have been able to write a young person that's not related to us physically a letter, or maybe we, we see them and we're able to tell them this. Hey, I want you to know that I have been praying for you by name, night and day. In other words, all the time. And I want you to know I've been really greatly desiring to see you. I know you've been off in the military. I've been praying for you. Remember, I, I've been writing your letters. I, I just, I've looked so forward to you being back home on leave. You want to go grab some coffee this afternoon? You want to grab lunch tomorrow? You know, I've been, I've been praying for you, and I am so glad you're home from college. How has that big transition gone in your life? You know, I, I know you're in the workplace now, and that's a big difference in high school and workplace. And, and, and I, just, I just want to connect with you. I've been praying for you every day, and I greatly desire to see you. Let's get together and spend time. And then notice the next thing Paul said about this genuine relationship. He even said, I'm mindful of the tears that you've been shedding. What if I ask you right now, of your young people here at Winchester that are not related to you, when's the last time they've shed tears, and why were they shedding them? Most would have to say, how am I supposed to know the last time they shed tears? And how am I supposed to know what they're shedding tears about? Well, it makes the point, doesn't it? The only way we can know what people are going through and why they're going through it is we have to have a genuine relationship with them. We're involved in people's lives on a daily or a very regular basis. We're able to celebrate with them on the things that are happening great in life because we know when they're going through great things. 
we're also able to weep with those who weep because we know when and why they're weeping. And it's really amazing to think that here is this, here's this older man who the only reason he experienced this relationship was that years and years ago, he was able to be on that second missionary journey and look over at this young man that this church is bragging about, and he made a proactive decision. Young man, would you join me on this trip? I'd like for you to be a partner in this mission work with me. And that made all the difference in Timothy's life. Do you realize that everybody here that's a faithful child of God has the ability to make all the difference in a young person's life? But the motive isn't just so we can say, oh, and now I have a good friend. The motive for us as Christians is we want that genuine relationship, but because we love them, we want what's best for them, and we want them to grow in genuine faith. You remember that verse that we just read just a few moments ago in verse 5? How he said to Timothy, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that's in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Notice this. And I am persuaded is in you also. Now when we read the rest of 2 Timothy, especially just the rest of the first chapter, we have a picture being painted here that Timothy is going through a very challenging time in his faith because here he is, a preacher himself of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Here Paul is at a distance away from him in a dungeon saying, I'm ready to be offered. I am about to be executed. Timothy knows why he's being executed. Because he's a preacher of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You can imagine the young man Timothy thinking, how long is it going to be before I'm executed? as a preacher of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know from verse 8, Paul's chains in prison are bringing fear into his life. So here's the mentor that knows him so well. And notice, and I don't, I don't mean to belittle this when I say this, but I mean it from an optimistic, encouraging sense. Notice the pep talk he gives him. Here's a young man that at this point in his life is probably struggling a little bit in his faith, and maybe a lot. And here's his old mentor that has prayed for him every night and day, that has always been for them to been there for him, to care for him, the one that has walked with him through journeys, walked through through life situations, and now he looks back to him and says, Young man, I know your grandmother. And I know your mother. And I know what kind of genuine faith. You grew up seeing every day. And I know you. Notice this optimism. I know you. Isn't it amazing when in life we're going through a tough time and we can't see the next season because we've not lived the next season. But you have a mentor in your life that they've been where you are, but they've also been through the next season. And so now here's this older man that's able to look back and say, Son, you're going to make it. I know the genuine faith that's in you. I really believe that when he's saying that, he's speaking as much of the optimistic as the reality. In other words, I know what you're capable of. I know that you're going to make it through this, and you're going to be the strong servant of God that you ought to be. I'm persuaded. I'm sold on the fact. I'm a believer that that faith is in you also. 
We need to encourage each other as peer to peer. We all need it. And I'm not belittling the importance of that. But there are some things that we need in a mentoring type relationship that we can't receive it with the same impact peer to peer. It is vital for us to have individuals in our lives that have walked a season above us, beyond us, and, and, and for them to believe in us and to give us guidance and wisdom. And all of that is incorporated in what? A genuine relationship that exists. Let me quickly just mention to you the three other things. They all fall naturally within this if we're Christians. If that mentor, if that one that's looking down, loving the younger one, is a faithful child of God, not only do they want that that genuine relationship and that genuine faith, but notice in verse 6, there's also going to be that concern for genuine service. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on my hands. That Paul knew that he had at least one uh, gift because Paul miraculously gave him that gift, is what seems to be implied here. Everybody here has the ability to serve the Lord. You have gifts and abilities that God has given you. And so, here, he's looking at the younger man, and, and he's wanting to stir up. That's the idea of rekindle. Like, if, if you think of a fire that, that is about to go out, any of you that ever camped, any of you ever heated your house with with a fireplace or a stove, and, and you know what it is to look at a fire and say, I better do something now or it's going to go out. He's looking at his beloved son. And he's implying, you know, son, if, if you stay on the path you're on, your service right now is waning. You know how with, with a fire you can, you can take maybe a, a little newspaper and you can wave it and get that spark to be rekindled again? He's trying to rekindle his fire in service. This church is full of good people that serve the Lord on a regular basis. And, um, you know, if it's preparing the Lord's Supper next Sunday, if it's teaching the two-year-old class, if it's taking a meal to someone that, that is sick or shut in this week, and you know, the list goes on and on of a church this size of so much good that's being done. I want to ask you something. This next week, this next month, when you're about to do something in service to the Lord, I want to ask you, will you stop? And before you do it, will you ask someone that's not your age to help you with it? Will you call someone that's young? And let's go ahead and say it, okay? It's awkward. You're going, to, I, I can't call him. I don't even really know them. I assure you, it's worth pushing through the awkwardness. And when you receive the phone call, it's going to be awkward. And it's worth pushing through the awkwardness. And it may go like this. Hey, I know this is a little bit random. This is a little bit crazy. But look, I, I fix the Lord's Supper every, every Friday afternoon. And I, I would just love for you to come over and help me as often as you can. I do it at 3 o'clock. Could, could you come over and help? Uh, yeah. That was weird. And they show up at 3 o'clock. And it's not quite as weird as what you thought. In the next week, in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, and genuine relationships starts being formed, you find yourself genuinely praying for the one you're serving with. 
You find yourself with them constantly on your mind. You find yourself saying, when church is over, oh, I want to go speak to them real quick. Even if it's just a real quick handshake. Or, you find yourself genuinely concerned about whether or not their faith is genuine. And you start naturally thinking, what can I do to help strengthen them? Wow, they're, they're about to graduate from high school. And I know the statistics. I know that's a tough transition in life as it relates to faith. What could I do to be there for them during that transition? What kind of face-to-face talk do I need to have with them that's going to let them know I'm persuaded that you can do this? What could I do to rekindle the fire? It can be in any time in life but especially during those transitions. Your 18-year-old, most of them, are going to leave home this summer or this fall. And it's going to be the first home they've ever had away from home. It can be a little bit scary to stand up and to be the only one standing with God in that brand new environment. It can be a little bit scary to drive into a parking lot of a church building that you've never been into in your life and not even know which door to walk into and not even really be certain if Bible class is first or worship and you don't know where to go for either. And isn't it interesting that Paul looks to his son and he says to him in verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, Timothy, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You see, he knows him well enough he can be bold. You see what he's saying indirectly. Timothy, that fear you're having right now, you're seeing me in prison, you're seeing me in the chains, and you're afraid? In other words, he's saying, you know that didn't come from God. Satan's the one that gave you that fear. But let me tell you what God will give you. God will give you power to stand when you don't think you can stand. God will give you love. When you think nobody else cares about you, no one else is on your side, you can know every time God loves you. God will give you a sound mind. Clear thinking. Have you ever noticed that when you're really, really scared, when you're afraid, that your thoughts are so confused, that sometimes and very oftentimes we'll say when we're afraid, I don't know what to do. I, I just don't know what to do. And this is kind of Paul's way as a mentor to look back and say, be calm. Don't be afraid. God loves you. He's going to give you the power. Now just clearly think, what is God's will in this? He'll give you a sound mind. He'll give you clear thinking. You'll just continually have that genuine faith in Him. That genuine service with Him. So which young person doesn't matter? Not one, is there? We love them all. But the real question that we have to ask ourselves is, do they know we love them? Do they know it so much because the relationship is so real? You know, it's, 
that real relationship that God wants with us. He doesn't want us to follow Him at a distance. Again, think, He wants us to follow Him like a child imitates their father. He wants us to pray to Him like a child calls out to His Father. Our Father who art in heaven. So this morning, we're about to sing a song of encouragement. We've had such beautiful singing and worship this morning. And we're about to sing a song of encouragement where by design, it's literally the idea that we sing to each other. And as we sing praise to God, we sing to each other, encouraging each other that if your life is not right with God, why not letting this very moment be the time that you surrender yourself to God? If you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins as a believer, one that's willing to repent, one that will stand in boldness and confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, why not do that right now? Maybe you've begun that journey and along the way you've lost sight of the Lord. Maybe now's the time that you're ready to repent. Confess sin. By God's amazing grace, be forgiven. We'd be honored to pray with you and for you. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand.